MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 157 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, January 24th. And joining me from a remote location without his microphone today, just so you know, that's why it sounds the way it does, uh, is my good friend Pete Strzok. Hey, Pete. Hey, Allison Gill. I am happy to be joining you from the road. To our dear listeners, I apologize for my subpar audio, but I promise for the bonus, we'll be back on track. But in the interim, we have, as most weeks, I think, into the future of 2024, we will have a ton to cover today, uh, including more information on the accusations from Mike Roman about a personal relationship and conflict of interest between Nathan Raid and Fonnie Willis, and updates on the E. Jean Carroll defamation case against Donald J. Trump in federal court in New York. Yes, indeed. And we have more lies from Jim Comer about some behind-closed-doors testimony. Big shocker, I know. Uh, we have Republicans backing down from holding Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress and some bad news for Pete Navarro, which is always good news for us. But first, we want to thank some new patrons, Aaron Peck, Tiffany Baugh Helton, Joanne Gostovich, Evelyn Stapleton, Stephen, Virginia A. Stern, Alice Ostdeek, Lisa Haney Lima, and Celeste and Kate Turhar. Please forgive me if I mispronounced your names. I'm totally sorry. And by the way, Pete, our RSVPs went out on that Saturday. Your birthday. Happy, happy birthday uh, a few days later. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 50 is great so far. <laughs> so we have 150 spots. We had 600 people RSVP. Amazing. Amazing. In a, in a 24-hour period. So if you aren't picked for, for the DC event on April 20th, do not despair. Stay with us. Please continue to support independent media, uh, because we will have a bunch of other opportunities for you uh, this year. We're doing, I'm doing a tour this summer and fall, um, and we'll be coming to DC as well, uh, and all sorts of other cities, and only patrons will get access to VIP meet and greets before the show, um, and um, we'll have all manner of guests coming to those too. We're also going to be doing this thing that we're doing in April in DC. We're going to be doing this every year or so. Um, we will try to pick new people every time it comes up. So don't fret if you don't get picked. It it tears me up, Pete, that we can't take everybody. <laughs> it really does. Like, I hate it. Um, but thank you so much for all of your amazing support. That is amazing. So, Pete, today let's start in Fulton County, where on Monday, just a couple days ago, a hearing was held in Cobb County over a four-year-old, excuse me, two-year-old divorce proceeding between Fulton County Prosecutor Nathan Wade and his estranged wife. 
The hearing was to determine whether to unseal the divorce proceedings and for a motion to quash Fannie Willis's deposition in the divorce. So the judge determined uh, that the case was sealed improperly and ordered it to be unsealed. Now, a lot of folks, a lot of intrepid reporters, uh, including Anna Bauer, um, uh, Professor Kreese, they've all been going through all of these divorce papers that have been unsealed. There is nothing in there to suggest what Mike Roman is suggesting. Um, of course, the, the credit card transactions are in there. The travel credit card transactions are in there, but that's it. And those we had last week. And then also in this hearing, the judge stayed the deposition of Fonnie Willis because get this, Pete, Nathan Wade hasn't even been deposed in the case and he's the guy getting divorced. So they, you know, they, the judge was like, well, let's let's stay Fonnie Willis's uh, deposition. Um, we don't need it now. If we need it at all, we may be able to get all the information from Nathan Wade. After Nathan Wade is deposed, then we will figure out, the court will decide whether there's any information that Fonnie Willis only could provide to the court that, say, Nathan Wade could not. That's usually how you get a deposition. Pete, I think you know something about that. Yeah, you know, and it does give some credence to the counter allegations that came out of Fonnie Willis's camp that, look, there's some question that whether or not uh, the the Nathan Waite's ex-spouse was collaborating or cooperating in some form or fashion with Mike Roman to sort of like cast dispersions, not just for the purposes of the divorce proceedings, but to, you know, try and go after politically. And when you hear things like this, it's like, well, okay, maybe there's some merit to it. But again, at the end of the day, the point that we made, you know, last week in, in in the bonus. Let's wait and see what the facts are. Let's wait and see what actually is comes out in sworn testimony. And in this case, you know, these are all again at the at the end of the day, these are allegations made by Trump campaign lawyer Mike Roman for background. And as we mentioned before, Roman was a uh, sort of political oppo researcher for the Koch brothers. He worked for the Trump campaign. He is very skilled in sort of digging up dirt and the ways and means to find. Uh, embarrassing or problematic things. But at the end of the day, he is contending that there's a conflict of interest because Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade had a you know clandestine romantic relationship. But there's a new piece out uh, from Joyce Vance, Norm Eisen, and Richard Painter in Just Security, which makes the point that Fonnie Willis is not disqualified under Georgia law. Now, this is from the article, quote, prosecutors are human and they can and do make mistakes. The question here is whether Willis's and Wade's apparent mistakes have any bearing on the election conspiracy prosecution in a way the law would require their removal from the case. You know, they go on to say that even if the allegations are true, there's no basis under Georgia law to disqualify them from the racketeering case. They conclude, quote, as a matter of both common sense and Georgia law, a prosecutor is disqualified from a case due to a conflict of interest. And that term, specific quoted term, conflict of interest, only when the prosecutor's conflicting loyalties could prejudice the defendant leading, for example, to an improper conviction. None of the factual allegations made in the Roman motion have a basis in law for the idea that such prejudice could exist here, as it might where a law enforcement agent is involved with a witness or a defense lawyer with a judge. We might question Willis's judgment in hiring Wade and the pair's other alleged conduct, but under Georgia law, that relationship and their alleged behavior do not impact her or his ability to continue on the case. Now, they continue, though, to say, however, quote, although Georgia law on disqualifying a prosecutor would permit Wade to remain on the case as well, 
In our view, he should voluntarily step down. His continued presence will create a distraction, and his departure, in addition to an on-the-air hearing in court, is the best path to dispense with any lingering concerns. Doing so will avoid any debate about even an appearance of impropriety going forward. Willis is an elected official and has an ongoing obligation to serve her constituents. Stepping down is the honorable thing for Wade to do and at the same time respect the interests of the electorate. So, you know, it makes sense to me. I think, you know, they're they're all very between Joyce Vance and uh, Norm Eisen and Richard Painter, all very accomplished attorneys and former prosecutors. And they know, you know, to, to sit down there and look at Georgia law, look at the ethical obligations under the uh, Georgia regulations. You know, it's a, a well-written, well-reasoned piece. Yeah. And, and Richard Painter wrote the book on government ethics, like literally. Um, so I would be comfortable formulating my opinion around those of Joyce Vance and Norm Eisen and Richard Painter. So I, I recommend everybody read the piece. They they go into great detail in Georgia code, Georgia, you know, the law. They go into the personal travel, the financial compensation for Wade, all of it. They go into all of it at Just Security. Um, and, you know, I I have to I have to agree with with their assessment that because Fonnie Willis is actually the elected official here with an obligation and a duty that it's probably best if Wade, if you know, if someone were to step down, that it's that it's Nathan Wade. Um, a couple other things that have come up, by the way, um, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. You know, who's that, Jack Posobiec, or do you know who I'm talking I cannot, about? I, I can't. I do, and I cannot keep him separate and distinct from Ben Shapiro, from the uh, Project Veritas Keith guy, yeah. from. But they all blur together. The the one that got the two big head with the two little eyes. I just they all they all merge into <laughs> Charlie uh, Kirk. You know, kind of, you know, yeah, the, the the hateful right wing space of you know sort of moronic uh, people yeah. who, who who dig up dirt and spur you know yeah, the, spin the rumor and you end up noise track, machine track right exactly. So he 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 came out and said that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is investigating Fonnie Willis, bah, you know, for this. Um, and it turns out um, a, a reporter had reached out to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. They're not investigating the DA for this. Hmm. So that de- debunked that media talking point. Um, the judge, Judge McAfee, has set a hearing on Mike Roman's motion for February 15th with the DA's written response to Roman's allegations due on February 2nd. And she is going to respond in writing by that date. The court is ordering her to do so. Um, We have a couple more things to cover in Fulton County, including a motion from Donald Trump and Jeffrey Clark to Mm. compel discovery. And that has been denied by Judge (laughs) McAfee. And he says, having read and considered the defendant's motion to compel discovery, and after hearing arguments from counsel and a a proffer by the state on January 12th, the court finds it is unable to grant the defendant's requested relief as the items demanded do not exist, (laughs) that the state has adequately addressed the other concerns raised by defense counsel. The motion is therefore moot. So this was not unlike Donald Trump's motions to compel in both the federal D.C. case and the federal Mar-a-Lago case, right? Just broad, wide-ranging, asking for every exculpatory thing from every agency under the sun, including the Department of Energy, um, like absolutely ridiculous, like increasing the scope of the prosecutorial team, right? Uh, to try to ask for things that don't exist, like the missing January 6th documents or the, you know, 
Oh, the, the right wing media is a buzz today with a hundred deleted files from the January sixth website, the commission website. All they are were duplicate uh, transcripts of of testimony. So, uh, you know, it's there's nothing missing. And McAfee here was like, "Sorry, these don't even what what you're asking for doesn't exist." And when you when you file a motion to compel discovery, it has to be material to the case, and it has to. Um, exist. You have to be specific about what's missing. You have to know what's missing and you have to specifically ask for it. And Judge uh, McAfee rightfully denied both because Clark filed a motion and Trump like joined on. I want me too. I'm part of that too. And so denied. Jeff Clark is also trying to get his Fulton <laughs> County case removed to federal court. And last Thursday in a 69 page filing, nice, Clark requested a full panel of judges on Bonk, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta, to take up his arguments to change jurisdiction at the same time they consider Mark Meadows's parallel ask. There also is a third battle over whether three other co-defendants in the Georgia case should be allowed to move their case to federal court. They're claiming that they're former federal officers because they were presidential electors. Um, they were fraudulent electors. That's why they've been indicted. But whatevs, um, like Meadows and Clark, the so-called Georgia fake electors, David Schaefer, Kathy Latham, and Sean Still has, have lost in lower court, and now they're trying with the 11th Circuit. Um, so he wants to piggyback. Jeff Clark wants to piggyback on Meadows's uh, removal thing. And I just feel like Meadows is like, get him out of here. Um, in, in their own joint brief filed earlier Thursday, those three fraudulent electors argued to the 11th Circuit that Judge Jones's ruling should be reversed because, quote, the state's criminal prosecution is facially and conclusively preempted by the U.S. Constitution and federal law. No, um, but uh, it's it's fun to watch them try, I guess. Um, we'll see what ends up happening. But this is a an en banc petition from Clark and then an 11th Circuit petition from these three fraudulent electors, they're all going to be shot, uh, just shot down. I mean, there's no, was it judge Pryor, the very conservative chief judge of the 11th circuit? Who's like, no, it, it this doesn't apply to former federal officials, which honestly I think is probably a reversible error. Um, but also n nothing you did falls within the outer perimeter of your job. So, eh. Yeah, no, and, and Jeff Clark is the little, the little engine that couldn't. I mean, he just keeps trying and trying, and you're absolutely right. I think he is the, not even the kid brother, but it's that just the, if you're Mark Meadows, the last person you want to see trying to glom onto your emotions is Jeff Clark, because it just, it's a, it's a negative distraction, uh, or in the best case, it's a negative distraction. In the worst case, it just weakens his argument. But I think whatever, you know, quite in the course of uh, official duties arguments uh, that Meadows might have, Clarks are far more removed. But the scary thing, again, you know, we we laugh and we say, yeah, it's not going to get anywhere. And that's true. But the thing to keep in mind is, you know, talking about all this is the man was a heartbeat away from being the acting attorney general. He was sitting yeah. there suggesting, you know, saying, well, you know, that's why we have the Insurrection Act. If, you know, their protests, if, you know, Trump were to do certain things at the, uh, the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. So as foolhardy as, you know, kind of numbskull laden legal efforts that that Clark may be pursuing. The fact of the matter is the man was almost the attorney general of the United States of America. So I, that should give everybody pause. And the other thing is not, you know, not only in the context of looking backward of did he commit crimes that he should be prosecuted for, but he's still on like the short list with all these other numbskulls in the next future Trump administration. So it isn't 
as much as we, or at least I, look and say, well, this is kind of a pathetic showing, the fact of the matter is these are, you know, he's still kind of a mover and shaker. He's deeply involved in this Project 2025 uh, group that's looking about how to staff and change uh, across the federal bureaucracy, whether it's the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, all kinds of environmental regulations, just how Trump might change and do things differently. He's he's in the middle of that. So I, it, it's, it's immensely frustrating. And hopefully, right. you know, we get a quick denial and he can move on towards trial and, you know, we'll see where the facts go, but get convicted and uh, go to jail. Yeah. And we can call him when there's an oil spill in, mm. in jail. <laughs> All right, um, everybody, we have to uh, take a quick break, but we have a lot more news to get to. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back. We have more new patrons to thank. Sidey Girl, Eileen E., Doug Apparently Inebriated Hill, Kristen R., S.D. in the Berg, Kristen Rooksberry, P.J. McClure, Ellen Gordon, Diane and Al, and Lisa or Lisa Bilyeu. Uh Thank you so much for your support. Um, you are making a critical difference in our ability to put this together and get all of these facts and news out to you in a especially important time as we go through all these criminal proceedings as we approach the next presidential and uh, election cycle of this fall. So thank each and every one of you. And with that, let's go up to New York. Now, where we heard testimony this week in the Eugene Carroll case against Trump for defamation. Now, we've talked at length, and you all know the background here, so let's just dive into what happened. A jury <laughs> was selected, and opening statements were made on the first day. Now, Eugene Carroll was on the stand for the next three days, and sadly, not. It didn't go that well for parking lot trained lawyer Alina Hama. Multiple times, Judge Kaplan had to explain court procedures to her, including how to impeach a witness, how to enter evidence, and how to refer to a deposition. Now, Allison, she was corrected not once, not twice, not five times, but at least 23 times by Judge Kaplan <laughs> in, on the first day alone. Now, on the oh. second day, Hobbes' question was continually objected to, and because she was trying to introduce evidence and arguments that had been barred by Judge Kaplan in the January 9th order, replying to a motion to eliminate. She was barred, for instance, from bringing up Eugene Carroll's sexual past, her finances, her success, her political leanings, and she brought up all of those things successfully. At one point, Haba asked Eugene Carroll if she had deleted messages with death threats, then called for a mistrial, alleging that she had deleted evidence and discovery. It was denied on the spot, but nevertheless, she filed for it again later on the same grounds, and that too was denied in court just this Monday. <laughs> and then moving away from the, the rest <laughs> of this all-star cast, Boris Epstein. Boris tried to speak at one point, and Judge Kaplan, <laughs> Judge Kaplan asked him, are you a member of the bar of the federal court? Epstein replied, quote, I'm a member of the state bar. <laughs> to which Judge Kaplan replied, quote, all right, then please have a seat. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, and I just don't, I mean, and some of the, you know, the financing figures came out uh, disclosing how much various Trump-affiliated PACs and other or entities had paid to his legal representation, and it's staggering not only in the volume and the amount of the payments, but the quality and the lack, specifically the lack of quality of his legal representation. And if you want to see, you know, kind of the core competency, at least, again, and look, do I think Alina Haba is an effective communicator for Donald Trump? I do, particularly yeah. to his base, 
to Fox News, to OAN, to the constituency that he wants her to talk to. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think she's pretty effective. Is she an effective federal trial attorney? Oh, hell no. Yeah. And that was in evidence, in abundance uh, during uh, Eugene Carroll's um, uh, testimony. So following that, uh, Dr. Ashley Humphreys testified about the scope and reach of the defamation. Now get this, she estimated defamation damages between two and $10 million. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss were estimated between 15 and $43 million. So, you know, but, but that, that, that may change, right? Yeah, absolutely. That could go up because Saturday night, E. Jean's lawyers filed a motion to enter all the new defamatory statements Trump has been making during the trial, and they want to enter it all into evidence um, and, and stated that that would impact the punitive damages. Now, those damages are different from the kind of damages Dr. Ashley Humphreys was testifying about, which is the defamation damages. Right now, we had all been wondering if Trump was going to testify on Monday. The trial was held on on Friday, Thursday, I think Thursday after the questioning was done. They didn't come back into court on Friday. Um, And the the rumor was that Trump was going to come back and testify uh, on this past Monday. And everyone said, no way, 100 percent. No way. I gave it a 50 50 shot. And the reason I gave it a 50-50 shot, Pete, was because he did stand up and speak in the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial during closing arguments. Now, granted, there was no cross-exam there, and he wasn't really given permission, uh, but he did speak. And uh, Lisa Rubin reported today that there were a couple of uh, other attorneys there, Blanche and Nicholas, who are two are Trump attorneys that showed up to the court today. Trump showed up to the court today, and it looked like, by all accounts, Trump was going to testify because that was all that was supposed to occur today, right? And and so it looked like he was gonna, but then the trial was postponed. The day the day was postponed. A juror a juror had called in sick, and then Alina Haba said she was in direct contact with her parents who have tested positive for COVID. Though she tested negative uh, on Monday before court, uh, Eugene's lawyers wanted to proceed uh, because there are nine jurors, but you only need six. But on Alina Haba's request, unlike what Elise Stefanik is out there shouting that it's, uh, you know, election interference, it was on Alina's ha- Alina Haba's request that the judge continued the trial until Tuesday. Of course, Haba asked for Wednesday because of the New Hampshire primary. Um, and Kaplan, Judge Kaplan said he would take it day by day. And then he actually came back and put in a minute order um, holding the trial on Tuesday as well. But he didn't say whether he was holding it for the New Hampshire primary or holding it for jury COVID concerns. Right. And, and some of that's interesting because there is there is some speculation, right, about whether or not that juror that the defense in particular wanted that juror there because presumptively, you know, they weren't part of the New York limousine liberal crowd and they might be somebody perceived to be favorable for Trump. And that, you know, again, this is all speculation, but that the reason particularly that the defense wanted to wait and postpone is because they perceived this missing juror as somebody who would be uh, favorable to them. A more friendly to, to Trump, a rural juror. Exactly. Got it. Um, then uh, also on Monday uh, before they left, Kaplan denied Haba's mistrial motion. She put it in writing over the weekend um, because, and here's why, uh, we all knew for over a year now that E. Jean had deleted some of the death threats, and this was the first time it came up, so you're too late. Now, Haba said she'd like to make a Daubert motion about Dr. Ashley Humphreys. They really hate 
that Dr. Ashley Humphreys was a witness. They tried to strike her multiple times. Now, a Daubert motion seeks to exclude expert testimony that presents questionable scientific evidence. And at first, Judge Kaplan was like, the time for that was before she testified. But then he said, (laughs) if you want to put it down on paper, go ahead. So (laughs) I'm sure it's going to be swiftly denied. And um, as I said, Judge Kaplan has held the trial uh, for Tuesday for the New Hampshire primary. It, it, It is back on, presumably, as this episode airs on Wednesday. So we'll see what ends up happening. I don't know. It's it's not looking good. And then also for New York Attorney General, Pete, they're done, right? I mean, they've had their arguments. We're just waiting for a ruling from Mangoron. Yep, that's right. There's nothing mm-hmm. left to do. And I, you know, I don't know if there's any pending, you know, uh, filings motions. that they should be motions that should be thrown out. But regardless, I think we will see and I don't know how long it's going to take for him to come up with the uh, verdict. But in the, the judgment, I would anticipate that is going to be appealed. I don't know how long that's going to take to work its way up through the New York appellate process. But yeah, that could come. I mean, it's been, you know, what, a week and a half at this point, maybe a little bit about that. So that could be coming uh, at any point. And again, if you want to see uh, what sets Trump off, it is and always has been uh, his finances, his money, and his ego. And you know, this particular being potentially barred from any real estate transactions in New York for him or his, or his organizations is huge. It is a huge mm-hmm. financial blow. It is a huge ego blow. And so I anticipate, uh, you know, whenever this ruling comes out and, you know, not guessing what it'll be, but I think there's a fairly decent chance that the penalty will be rather severe. I think Trump's going to lose his mind. Yeah. I think that uh, the judge had some very pointed questions about evidence against the kids. Um, so I don't know that they're going to be on the hook uh, the way that uh, Don Trump Sr. is going to be on the hook. Uh, we'll end up, we'll see what ends up happening, but um, we could get that. We could also get a, a Rudy disbarment any moment. We've been waiting months for that. Um, there's so many things that we're waiting on. The immunity um, uh, ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to see if the D.C. federal case can go forward. And by the way, I added up all those um, legal expenses for Donald Trump. 18 plus million dollars um, spent so far. And as you know, and as we've talked about multiple times, these are from donations. These are from monthly donations from people on fixed incomes, probably who are draining their savings to, to help promote this. And now Florida wants to put out a, a new le- a piece of legislation from the CFO of Florida to use public funds to fund five, $5 million <laughs> to Donald Trump. The way that they're wording it is that we need to protect our fellow Floridians. So any Floridian who is running for president that has been indicted, you will get funds from the state of Florida. Uh, that is one person in 234 years. Yeah. So exactly. And good thing, you know, good thing, too, that, uh, you know, Florida is not made up disproportionately of elderly people living on fixed incomes. Uh, mm-hmm. So let's let's yes, let's put the burden on them. Let's make sure that these folks who are living, you know, potentially on pensions and paycheck to paycheck, let's take some of that, you know, tax money and, and give it to Donald Trump for again. Yeah. Think about think about how much, you know, the huge amount of this legal representation coming to defend him from violations of law in both the criminal and civil context and not two hundred thousand dollars, not eight hundred thousand, not one point five million dollars but tens of millions of dollars. And we're just getting started. We haven't hit federal criminal trials. We're still in the pre-trial process. It is just going to explode. But yeah, let's let's load up those elderly folks and 
in Florida, you know, who saved up and are, you know, living down in St. Pete or wherever it is. Let's, let's, mm. let's go, let's, let's shuffle off of during their retirement to, to, to Don. Yeah. Help him out. And he, he only keeps lawyers that say yes to him and, 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 you know, put in pleadings his absolute ridiculous arguments. Um, we've seen recently, we talked about last week, Joey Taco Pants has left. Taco Pina has left his legal team. Um, Taco Pina famously told him not to testify in the first E. Jean trial, and Trump's always felt that that was a mistake. He was working on the Trump E. Jean 2 appeal, which is the E. Jean Carroll 2 is the first E. Jean Carroll trial, um, because it happened later in time, the, the you know, the defamation, but it went first uh, because there wasn't an argument about whether the DOJ was going to represent him. But he, that's what he does. He did it in the coup. Remember, he, he wouldn't invite Hirschman and the Pats, Philbin and Cipollone to the parties and the crazy Oval Office meetings because he only wanted people there that would entertain his weird executive order, insurrection act, seizing voting machines, crazy bullshit. And so they were disallowed to, to attend those meetings and only folks like the crack and strike force who are, you know, continually uh, in disbarment hearings now. Uh, and some are unindicted co-conspirators and some are actually indicted co-conspirators in Fulton County. Um, those are the only kinds of lawyers he wants around him are the are the ones that will say yes to whatever weird stuff he wants to happen or just have zero trial experience like Alina Habo, which we will continue to see. It's going to be really interesting if Donald Trump chooses to testify because he will be subject to cross-examination by Robbie Kaplan, who is very skilled, a very skilled federal trial lawyer. Um, in front of a very skilled judge, Lewis Kaplan, no relation to E. Jean's lawyer. Uh, but then we have Alina Haba questioning Donald Trump. And there are multitudes of things that they are not allowed to talk about. And I think probably the goal here is to show the jury that he's not allowed to talk. He's not allowed to defend himself. And that will be evident through the multitudes of objections and sustained objections from this partisan hack judge, et cetera, et cetera. And so if he does end up testifying, I'm sure that's the goal is to get one of those jurors to feel sorry for him that he can't say his piece on the stand uh, without being objected to over and over again, uh, despite what the, the jury instructions will be and what the motion and limine order has been and the things that aren't allowed in. Uh, I think that that's that's got to be the goal in my mind if he does end up testifying. And and we might know by the time you hear this episode. So we'll see. Yeah. And I'm curious, too, like in the long run. And, and it was clear Tecopino went on a couple of uh, like CNN and maybe even MSNBC and gave interviews. And it was clear that at least my read that there was some bad blood on the legal team and between mm -hmm. Tecopino and Haba and Evan Corcoran and Boris Epstein Everybody it, hates it, it's, Boris. It's, it's, it's like the Trump effect, right? It's, you have marginally competent people who are full of ambition, who are stabbing each other in the back. Think back to Trump's administration when you had like uh -huh. the Omar Rosa and Corey Lewandowski and, and, and Tony Scaramucci or Scaramucci and Kellyanne Conway, and they all hated each other, factions of each other, and they were all talking, leaking to the press to make the other person look bad. It's the same thing going on with Trump's legal team, except. You know, for the most part, they have legal boundaries and ethical boundaries, and they can't engage in that same sort of dialogue. But it was clear to me, at least, it seemed listening to some of Takapina's interviews, that there were some real issues and that he had some real disagreement. And not just like, oh, I think the right path is to do A rather than B. There was more than that. And, you know, whether or not we eventually find it all out, I don't know. But it is, it's the Trump effect, right? Let me get 
not even marginally competent people, then you get the third string folks who haven't been picked for anything else, who are, you know, kind of nasty and pursuing nasty agendas and are backbiting and leaking and snidely talking to whoever will listen about the others. It's that's the Trump effect. That is in the the people around him. And that, you know, we saw it in his administration. We're seeing it from his legal team. And sure as shit, we're gonna see it. Sorry for swearing. We're we're gonna see it again in his campaign. And undoubtedly, if he's reelected in whatever whoever makes up his administration. Yeah. Yep. And um here's hoping he's not. Uh we gotta take a quick break. <laughs> um we still have a lot of news to get to, but um, and, and of course, more patrons to thank as well. But we need to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have a new batch of patrons to thank, including Brandon D. Smith, Russ, Buddy Atkins, Jan Laskowski, C.T., E. Gratch, Michelle Clark, Margie, Jen6172, and Chris. Thank you. We can't do this without you. We appreciate you so much. Uh, I will have a date pretty soon for when we choose the 150 uh, folks um, for the D.C. April 20th uh, gathering. Um, and uh, we'll let you know as soon as those names go out. Uh, but again, stay with us. Stay, be, stay a patron, please. We, we have many, many more events to come up that um, coming up this, this year that only patrons will have access to. Uh, next up, Pete, we've been watching the clown show Impeachment Inquiry in the House. And we know that before a full impeachment vote, Comer and Jordan issued a subpoena to Hunter Biden. Now, he tried to show up twice to testify publicly because every single closed door deposition ends in Comer and Republicans, uh, you know, at large, lying about the testimony, misrepresenting it. And they continue to refuse to release the release of transcripts of these interviews. Now, this past week, the Republicans backed off holding Hunter Biden contempt because they knew, first of all, they didn't subpoena him properly. And Hunter's lawyer said, uh, issue us a lawful subpoena and we'll show up. And then that's what happened, right? So everyone's like, well, Hunter relented. No, the Republicans relented <laughs> um, and finally issued a lawful subpoena. Now, he's set to testify behind closed doors on February 28th. And while all that was being hammered out, we learned that Comer and House Republicans lied about another closed door testimony in their impeachment inquiry. Here's ranking member Raskin's statement on the matter. He says, just like every other witness in this colossal embarrassment of an investigation, Kevin Morris affirmed today that he has no evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden and that Joe Biden was not involved in, did not profit from, and took no official actions in relation to Morris and Hunter Biden's relationship. It's hard to articulate how far removed this interview is from an impeachment inquiry for presidential high crimes and misdemeanors. Mr. Morris was born into a working class family in Pennsylvania, went to Cornell and NYU Law School, became a sensationally successful entertainment attorney for 36 years, whose client lists includes many high profile celebrities. He befriended Hunter Biden, and they found an immediate affinity and closeness, not only in their Irish Catholic upbringing in the Mid-Atlantic, but in their common struggle with alcohol abuse. As an art enthusiast, Mr. Morris bought some of Hunter Biden's paintings and lent him money to cover certain expenses, including rent and IRS payments, and to support his continuing journey in sobriety. The loans are documented in loan agreements negotiated by lawyers, and the standard terms require repayment of all principal and interest. None of this is illegal or unethical. Far from it. 
nor does it have anything to do with President Biden or presidential high crimes and misdemeanors. Mr. Morris stated to the committee unequivocally that neither President Biden nor his administration had any role in his decision to loan money or buy paintings from his friend Hunter Biden. Not even remotely close to identifying a trace of an impeachable offense after more than a year of increasingly desperate investigation, in quotes, the Republican inquiry is sinking deeper into irrelevance and comedy. Can I just read that sentence again? Because it is fantastic. Not even remotely close to identifying a trace of an impeachable offense after more than a year of increasingly desperate investigation. The GOP inquiry is sinking deeper into irrelevance and comedy. But the growing tragedy is all the work we're not getting done for America because of their ludicrous obsession. The evidence consistently debunks the GOP's lies about President Biden at the heart of this aimless, storm-tossed fishing expedition. Instead of facts or evidence, House Republicans are just pursuing the political revenge demanded by former President Donald Trump, harassing President Biden's adult son, who already has a special counsel working full-time on his case, is not a legitimate constitutional duty, nor is chasing after anyone in the, pre the president's son has ever come in contact with, including his uh, gallerist and art dealer last week and his lawyer and good friend today. This bumbling inquiry should be brought to a halt. Now, and, and further highlighting what a complete sham this is, you know, Kevin Morris's attorney has written a letter accusing Comer of, guess what? mischaracterizing his client's testimony. Quote, not two hours after we left Mr. Morse's transcribed interview, you issued a press statement with cherry-picked, out-of-context, and totally misleading descriptions of what Mr. Morse said, unquote. Now, the letter demands that the entire transcript of Morse's interview be released immediately. Comer said he'll re release it, quote-unquote, soon. We're going to get to that, but he doesn't have it yet. <laughs> So we're going to get to that as Comer's middle no, name. We're going to get to it, right? This is from NBC. Quote, after Morris's deposition, Comer, who serves as chairman of the Oversight and Accountability Committee, released a statement that said Morris's, quote, massive financial support to Hunter Biden raises ethical and campaign finance concerns for President Joe Biden. What? Continuing, shortly after meeting Hunter Biden in at a Joe Biden campaign event in 2019, Kevin Morris began paying Hunter Biden tax liability to insulate then-presidential candidate Joe Biden from political liability, the statement added. <laughs> Continuing, Kevin Morris admitted he loaned the president's son at least $5 million. Look, here, I, if you, dear listeners, ever see a press statement from any member of Congress about testimony or an interview without a link to the transcription of that interview or testimony, do not, do not take that with any amount of credibility. Wait and see, and particularly, and we've seen it with Jim Comer and Jim Jordan time and time and time again, and it's the exact, this is the reason why Hunter Biden didn't, and Abby Lowell didn't want him going for a closed-door testimony. We have seen them time and time again, misconstrued testimony, this is no different, and now we've got, you know, Kevin Morris, yet to add it to the list of reasons why you cannot trust a word coming out of crayon-eating James Comer's mouth. It just, it's unbelievable. And it never is. No. No, nor will it until we vote them all out, flip the house. Um, also, by the way, you know they're trying to impeach Mayorkas, right? He's the <laughs> Department of Homeland Security Secretary. But an internal Republican memo not meant for the public shows that the House Homeland Security Committee decided last week it would mark up an impeachment resolution. 
for, for Mayorkas at the end of this month. The memo obtained by The Hill came the same day the committee kicked off its series of impeachment hearings. And amid complaints from Democrats, the proceedings have been rushed to uh, back a predetermined conclusion. And this memo sort of shows that. It appears to show Republicans have committed to a timeline with little flexibility to accommodate additional promised hearings or testimony from Mayorkas himself. The plans outlined in the memo, which Republicans shared accidentally, track with a pledge by Chair Mark Green to swiftly consider a resolution to boot Mayorkas from his job. But asked about its contents, Green said he was not putting any timeline out (laughs) and he would not corroborate a memo. (laughs) I'm not confirming or denying uh, any dates or times. Yeah, that, that, that timeline that is in the memo that I wrote that you were holding in your hand asking me about, but, but I had no timeline. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even, I, I don't, I can't corroborate the existence of the memo that you're holding right now. <laughs> uh, this is just the latest example of committee Republicans' sham process. It's abundantly clear they are not interested in hearing from Secretary Mayorkas since it doesn't fit into their bad faith, predetermined and unconstitutional rush to impeach him. Last week, the secretary offered to testify publicly before the committee. In the time since, the committee failed to respond to DHS to find a mutually agreeable date. That is DHS spokesperson Mia Ehrenberg in a statement. Instead, they provided this offer of written testimony to the media before any outreach to the department at all. So they gave him a week to come in. He was like, I'm busy. I have a delegation to Mexico to discuss border issues. And they're like, BS, you're evading. You must come in now. Do a written testimony without even reaching out to the Department of Homeland Security to set up a date that works. Republicans have yet to. This is another statement. Republicans have yet again demonstrated their preference for playing politics rather than working together to address the serious issues at the border, unquote. So. It's all just bunk. And every time they get caught, they're like, I don't even know what piece of paper you're talking about with my signature (laughs) on it. I don't. We'll get to it. Uh, Release the transcripts now. We don't we don't have we don't we don't I don't have it. it, It's like Ron Johnson being asked questions about like the fake electoral (sighs) slates. Like, Senator, Senator, I'm sorry, I'm on the phone. Senator, I can see your phone. You are not on a phone call. I can see (laughs) your screen, sir. You are not talking. What are you talking about? I'm on a phone call. What are you I'm talking about? Phone. There's no memo. I'm, the memo in your hand. I don't see that memo. <laughs> Did you get the memo on the TPS reports? <laughs> it's just <laughs> bonkers. Uh, all right. We have a couple more news stories to get to and some more patrons to thank, but we have to take one more quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. Last batch of new patrons to thank. Lisa S., Cufflinks and credentials, amen to that. Eric, <laughs> F COVID, get vaxxed. Cranky chemistry teacher, Jane Latcher or Lachey, a wonk in Lux, no Luxembourg, Luxembourg, double nickels in a pickle, and Lola Lum. Thank each and every one of you. Uh, it's uh, amazing. Your support is both humbling and necessary, and just can't thank you enough for your support of the program. So we've got a few more one off stories this week. First one, interestingly enough, uh, comes with some deep way back time machine uh, links. This comes from the Daily News. <laughs> I, I, I wanted, I gave this story to you. Yeah, on I know. Purpose, I figured I was like, okay, I, was, I see what you did there. I know this. Lynn Blavatnik, <laughs> who is a billionaire businessman with a history of ties to a sanctioned Russian oligarch and cryptocurrency tycoon Brock Pierce, 
Or among the donors who have poured in more than $666,000 into Mayor Adams' Legal Defense Trust contribution filing show. The filings, which were first reported by the Daily News before the public release late Tuesday, show Blavatnik and Pierce each donated the maximum $5,000 allowed by law to the trust. Adams launched the trust in mid-November to cover, cover legal fees. He and his associates may rack up as part of an FBI investigation into his 2021 campaign's finances and connections to the Turkish government. Now, Blavatnik, a Soviet-born investor with an estimated net worth of $31.3 billion, with a B, dollars, has a long record of dealings with Viktor Vexelberg. Now, Vexelberg, you may remember, is a Russian oligarch known to be close with Russian President Vladimir Putin, and he was sanctioned by the Treasury Department in 2018 and 2022 for enabling and financially supporting the Kremlin's worldwide malign activity including its war in Ukraine and interference in the 2016 U.S. election. A spokesperson for Blavatnik said he's never been involved in Russian politics or government, and he's not spoken with Vexelberg since he came under sanctions. Uh, again, these are all, I, I, I both have uh, fond memories and post-traumatic stress responses to uh, some of these folks coming up in the context of all the shenanigans in 2015 and 2016. But again, mm. why Eric Adams, of all people, uh, is a recipient of the largesse of some of these folks, is certainly very interesting. Yeah, and during the Mueller She Wrote podcast, I i mean, we had our whole, I think there was a, a whole segment on Vexelberg and Blavatnik. I know that they gave millions of dollars to, uh, what was it, Essential Consulting, which was mm -hmm. Michael Cohen's kind of access slush fund to Donald Trump. Uh, I know that there were uh, big dollar amount spent on inaugural tickets funneled through these guys. Um, I remember Steve Mnuchin, before he became treasurer, had to divest his, uh, his, oh, his ownership in his movie production company called Rat Pack Dune and gave all of his shares to Blavatnik. Uh, I mean, we, we covered these guys. They were so involved and I mean, if you want to just pull up the Mueller report and do a word search for Blavatnik and Vexelberg, you'll see exactly what I mean. They're all over that thing. And I know that you uh, are intimately uh, aware of many of the investigations that happened uh, regarding those two guys. And now to find out they're giving maximum donations, not to Adam's election campaign, but his defense, his legal defense fund. <laughs> it just blows my mind. Also, this is yours is going to make you smile, uh, Pete. Uh, Navarro will not get a new trial. Mm. In an order from Judge Amit Mehta, the judge writes, in summary, the record establishes that, in addition to members of the media, there were three men with signs in John Marshall Park when the jurors were on their break. Of the three men, two were filming and the third was not. None of them, nor anyone else, approached the jurors or directed any words toward them. None of the men pointed their signs towards the jurors. In fact, the two men filming didn't seem to recognize the group as jurors, let alone the jurors in the defendant's case. Furthermore, the evidence does not establish that the jurors saw either of the signs held by the two men filming or what those signs even said. So if you'll remember, Navarro wanted a new trial because after his verdict for criminal contempt of Congress... Right before that verdict came in, the jury like went outside and took a quick break, a fresh air break. And of course, Navarro was like, there were protesters everywhere. They were tainted by the anti-Trump protesters. Um, so 
the judge reviewed all the video. Um, there were three people with signs. Two of them weren't even being held up. Nobody even knew they were jurors. He's like this. No, you don't get a, a new trial. To begin, he said, the court holds that the defendant waived the argument that the jury's verdict was tainted by improper external influence because he failed to raise it with the court before the verdict. That's the big problem here. You can't you can't see the jury walking around and think they're tainted. Wait for your verdict to see if you like it and then complain about your verdict and say that it was tainted. That is legally not how you do that. Uh, he knows that. So should his lawyer. And so simply put, the defendant has failed to show that he was prejudiced in any way by the jury's brief break in John Marshall Park. For the foregoing reasons, the court denies the defendant's Rule 33 motion for a new trial. The end. Just Peter, go to, go to jail. There will be no Green Bay sweep. There will be no pontificating to Maria Bartiromo or anybody else. Just it's time to go to jail. Time to go and sit and buckle in and see what that experience is like for hopefully uh, six months because... Federal prosecutors on Thursday night asked for a sentence of six months in prison for Peter Navarro. Then the memo echoed the sentence recommendation for Bannon, who was ultimately given only four months in prison for defying his own subpoena for the January 6th quit. The sentencing would make Mr. Navarro the second Trump official to be sentenced for ignoring the committee's subpoenas. So, you know, there's a there's a trend here and you know, in any number of interesting ways of entitled, mediocre white men who feel that the law exists for everybody else except for them, who, you know, have tried to blow off uh, or did blow off congressional, congressional subpoenas at their own peril. And so hopefully, sentencing is set for January 25th. So as you're listening to this, uh, that Tomorrow. is, that's, <laughs> that's coming up. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. And okay. I, again, you know, does this, does this, you know, Bannon is still not gone to jail because he is pending or he's appealed uh, that sentence. And I assume, my, my guess is Navarro is going to do exactly the same thing, follow the playbook. And the goal, of course, is, you know, try and wait and see if they can get this past January of, uh, you know, 2025, where they hope a future President Trump will pardon them and they don't ever have to go to the Pope. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that, Bannon asked his judge if he could be out pending appeal. Most people aren't out pending appeal, um, but he had Judge Nichols, okay? Uh, that was Bannon's judge. Judge Emmett Mehta, he's also very lenient on sentencing, but he's mm -hmm. he's a, um, a Democrat-appointed judge, uh, whereas Nichols was, I believe, a Trump appointee. Nichols was the only judge, by the way, who thinks that 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding, uh, has to have something to do with a document. It has to involve documents. Uh, he's one out of like 16 or some, at least over a dozen judges that that say that 1512C2 doesn't apply to these January 6th uh, insurrectionists. Um, and so that's what the Fisher case that's going up to the Supreme Court is about, is this one Nichols decision. And so I don't know if uh, Judge Mehta will let Navarro out pending appeal like like Judge Nichols let Bannon out. But I also know that judges in the same circuit try to tend to treat like criminals in like ways. Um, so I expect another probably four months, uh, four month sentence, maybe even three months. Meta likes to come in way under the wire um, on, on these. We saw a lot of the uh, I think it was at the Proud Boys that he sentenced or the Oath Keepers, one of the two where they, they came way under the federal sentencing guidelines. I, you know, I expect 
Judge Mehta will probably try to treat Navarro as the same way that Bannon was treated, just for consistency, consistency's sake. But I'm not sure. We'll find out tomorrow. Yep, soon enough. And I think some of it he he may. I'm curious to see what he says because clearly with with Bannon's appeal pending, it's not as if the you know the ruling has been issued via the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and that that is a settled issue. So I'm I'm curious to see how it ends up. But yeah, that's uh, Pena Navarro needs to go to jail. Period. And uh, you know, hopefully he'll get there. It may take a while yet, but I, I have little doubt that he will eventually end up in the slammer, and he richly, richly deserves it. Yeah, uh, I agreed. I, and I hope that he is a part of a mop-up case uh, for Jack Smith. I, you know, I think I'm still of the belief, um, and this is just an opinion, that we haven't seen anyone else be federally indicted for January 6th and the coup because I think Jack Smith is trying to keep the Trump case clean, um, doesn't want any hangers on that could delay it. Uh, or, you know, people uh, um, filing motions to join the case and then file all their pretrial motions and delay past the election. Um, and so I'm hoping that uh, Pete Navarro is somehow uh, somewhere swept up in some sort of January 6th indictment. But um, we'll see. We'll see. It all depends on if they have enough evidence. And again, the great thing about having a special counsel is we will find out those declination decisions when a final report comes out probably sometime in like 2050, 2060. Pete, what do you say? <laughs> yeah, at least that if we're, if we're lucky right um we'll see no it'll I, be I, out I, in yeah. a couple years yeah. anyway um that's that's our show and I, I seriously like from the bottom of my heart can't thank you all enough our patrons you mean everything to us um everyone listening to this show all of your support is so so important um even if you know whether you're a patron or not just listening to to this show really, really helps us out. So we appreciate that. And I wanted to say thank you to all of the birthday wishes. Pete, my producer set up a P.O. box, didn't tell me about it. And everybody sent Yay. me birthday cards. Yay. <laughs> Yay. So, I, 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 he might have told me about that. So yeah, so I'm, I'm going to crack into those. And, and that just it makes my it just me. It just I love it. This community is the coolest. Our community of listeners is completely and totally the coolest so thank you thank you so much oh and pete working on a live show in dc maybe the miracle theater maybe somewhere down in navy yard um, amazing and, and let's uh, do it i the great thing about um the live show in dc is that it's real easy to get folks like you and andy mccabe to to join me on stage because you don't have to fly to grand rapids or anything so <laughs> look forward to that and we'll keep everybody posted and again Patrons, if you don't get picked for this particular gathering, there are going to be more. We're going to have live shows. Every live show has a VIP meet and greet that only patrons have access to. You still get the shows ad free, um, every, all of the other benefits. And, and we're going to be doing a lot more of these. Um, so thank you. And we, again, appreciate your your support. Any any final thoughts before we get out of here today, Pete, that we still don't have that immunity decision. I would just refresh Pacer. Yep. It's, it's coming. And I think any day now, and part of the thing in, if you haven't heard, it came out again today as we're taping it that uh, an AI, gen apparent AI generated uh, robocall appearing to be from Joe Biden to New Hampshire voters, encouraging them not to uh, go out and vote against Trump has come out. And, you know, whether or not I think I'm sure I'm willing to bet DOJ will investigate it, but that's something that we can talk about in the bonus. And part of being a subscriber is you get to hear conversations about that, that things are outside the normal sort of like the sweet spot of what we talk about 
on a day-to-day basis on the regular pod. So thank all of you for your support. I uh, can't wait to see those of you at the dinner. And Allison, as you said, I mean, for those folks who aren't able to attend because of the lottery system, uh, we'll have future events, uh, both for you know future dinners uh, for additional folks, as well as other events where we can thank all of you for your support. Yeah. Oh, and, and you know, on that very thing you were talking about, um, uh, a representative, a top Dem in the House admin committee has written a letter to Merrick Garland urging him to open an investigation into this robocall. We talked about it on the beans on Tuesday. And um, and I mean, Pete, this seems to me to be a violation of Title 18 U.S. Code 100%. 241, conspiracy 100%. against rights, which Ricky Vaughn uh, was just sentenced to seven months in prison. He's the guy who texted, you can vote for Hillary by text, avoid the polls, avoid the lines. Um, and Donald Trump is um, charged with... 241 conspiracy against rights in trying to uh, take our right to vote away and have our vote be counted uh, in his efforts to overturn the election. So the letter has been written to Merrick Garland to, to investigate this as a federal crime. And I think it should be the scary part though, is the AI bit, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we're just tapping into this. This is tip of the iceberg stuff. I'm it's frightening. It absolutely is. And it is not like anything we've ever seen before. And it's one of those when you see an issue and say, we can't, it is new. We cannot predict how it might be used because it is so new. And when you start sort of red teaming it and thinking about all the malicious ways, and there, there are good folks out there who are trying to do it, but it is a very, very scary proposition for this electoral cycle. And keep in mind too, this isn't just domestic bad actors who are going to try and take advantage of this. You can, I bet you, I'm certain. Oh, for sure. You know, Russia and Iran and many others are going to be trying to exploit, you know, the same vulnerabilities. And what that looks like, we don't know. We, we just and don't know. And I feel know. like the law probably needs to be updated too, because, you know, now you're impersonating an officer or you're impersonating the president or you're impersonating a, a elected official. I know there's a lot of different state laws against that. I know many people in Fulton County are charged with that. Uh, impersonating a federal officer. Uh, but the, it feels like the punishment should be greater if you're using AI to pretend that you're somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a whole area of it's new, right? There is no law because this is a new technology. So it's not that oh, the the idea behind this should not be you know, illegal or these actions shouldn't be illegal. It's just we haven't seen it before. So we have to see it to be able to define it or maybe try and get out of it. But the law is lagging up broadly. I mean, across the board with AI. Yeah. I mean, SAG-AFTRA is ahead of Congress on this sure. one. Yeah. And, you know, in NBC is reporting that the New Hampshire Attorney General's Office is investigating this. But you, you're absolutely right. I mean, my understanding in reading a federal election law is that this is is clearly, in my opinion, a, a federal violation as well. So I'd be very surprised if uh, DOJ and the FBI aren't uh, have an open investigation and aren't already looking at this. Yeah, we'll talk about that and a couple other things probably on the bonus this weekend. Uh, New Hampshire primary results should be interesting. Uh, as you are listening to this, you already know what they are. Uh, so congratulations on being part of the future. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we're going to be uh, talking to you again on the bonus episode for patrons this weekend. We'll see the rest of you next week. Uh, and uh, again, I just can't. Th- I'm so like touched by all the birthday wishes. It's been really awesome from you too, Pete. I appreciate it. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. 
Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>